Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, hello, everyone. I am that Williams guy here for another episode of the top-rated podcast that is recorded in my kitchen. It's a very, <laughs> it's a very select uh, demographic. And joining us today is Brian Hill. How are you doing, Brian? I'm good. Thanks for having me. And it's great to be in your kitchen with you. I'm well, in my and, laundry room. <laughs> and in your new house. Yes. Yes. So finally, uh-huh. after months, you get to stand erect when you take a shower again, right? It's crazy. <laughs> after a year of living in a trailer, I'm a first world citizen again. <laughs> wow. There you go. You actually actually wash dishes and do laundry. And stuff like that. It's a great, great gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, I got to put a little pressure on you. Okay. All right, this is your second visit on the show. Okay. I remember when you first came on, we were really excited if we got an episode to 200 plays in the first week. All right, each of the last two episodes have done over 200 plays on the first day. Wow. So you've got to uphold the standard Mm. here. You've got to hit at least 200 on the first day. I was going to bring my B game, but it's A game time. I hear (laughs) you. You know, because you can't let Tim Reedy beat you. Oh, no. It's hard to though. Tim's a nice guy, man. Right. He, yeah, everybody well, loves Tim. <laughs> well, he had Rick Remington to help him. Yeah. yeah. Rick's yeah. pretty nice too. <laughs> yeah. And Tim's a little disappointed in himself because he didn't tell any bad jokes. Oh, that, really? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was him. So. All right. Well, Brian, you have rolled out a new class. If I understand, remember the title correctly is deliberate coaching. Correct. Well, at least we got that one right. How about that? Yep, we're on a roll. So tell us a synopsis of deliberate coaching. Who is your target audience? So when I look at coaching, uh, I know we went through this in martial arts. It was really difficult. We set out, uh, we would emulate whoever the best fighter was. They'd make a curriculum and then we try try to follow them. And if you fit like them, it worked great. And we see a lot of that in the firearms industry where we have an NRA curriculum or USCCA curriculum. But what I really wanted to help people with is how to actually coach, how to be a good coach, how to deal with a client, and how to build a curriculum that is based around improvement, period. Uh, so it's, it's an idea of 40 years of me working in the private sector of coaching. And the hard lessons I learned. And, uh, you know, if you don't do well in a martial arts school, people just don't come. So you go, you don't get to eat and you you don't have a place to live. So it's kind of, it's kind of pressureful that way. Uh, Plus I was throwing guys in the cage to fight each other. So I had to make them perform at a high level. I had to find a way to reach them. And uh, these are my thoughts and feelings and a lot of research in neuroscience on how people think and how they learn and how the coach presents themselves and how curriculum can be developed to improve shooters, not only in accuracy and precision, speed and efficiency, but almost most importantly in performance mode and how they can get better at performing not only shooting skills, because that doesn't make you a great coach, but how they can get better at being a great coach under pressure and running a line. Yeah. And here's a shocker for the audience. 
passing an instructor class and getting a certificate does not actually mm. indicate that you know what you're doing. And there's more there to it. Right? There's more to the coaching, mm. coaching aspect of it. Uh, I, I've mentioned in several previous episodes, Bloom's taxonomy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lowest level of learning is just remembering. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then another class I just took from uh, LSU, uh, a very good class. And they gave a definition of learning that I really liked. And as it was a persistent, a persisting change in a knowledge, skill, or attitude. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't achieved a persistent change in knowledge, skill, or attitude, you haven't learned anything. Mm-hmm. You've just remembered something. That's the lowest level of learning, and that's not the level which someone should be at to be teaching. Uh-huh. Um, we talked about uh, the class is a three-day class, correct? Correct. All right, and you told me that each day has a different focus. Would you go into this? So each day is broken down into first the client. Uh, I kind of steal Craig Douglas's managing unknown contacts and turn it into managing unknown clients. Uh, how can we develop a database about our client so we can predict how they're going to behave in class from meeting them? We can predict how they're going to shoot. We can predict their performance. Uh, we can cr- render a diagnostic by looking at their posture and their ability to move and how they interact with people, the words that they choose, the visual contact they make with people. And then we can also make an adaptive coaching principle because that's what has to happen with a lot of people is sometimes you get a client. And we have very tried and true ways that work for 80% of the people we see, but there's a 20% that we can't quite reach. And uh, one of the big things with clients is uh, we're trying to affect not only their technical progress, but the decisional process. And I think as, you know, self-defense instructors, we spend a lot of time on talking about making good decisions, but also before that is the cognitive bias. Every client has a cognitive bias. So it's either too little time, too little information, or they're completely unfamiliar with its novel experience. So that's things that we try to get ready on the first day. And I talk to people about how people think, biases that are indicated, how to observe the words, the thoughts, the actions, the deeds, so that you know what you're going to see when you work with a shooter, and then how to adapt on the line quickly. So in two or three inputs, you can get a correction from the person. I've always felt like as a, as a coach, I'm failing a person if I don't get a correction very quickly. It means I haven't communicated well, so I need to change as a teacher. Uh, and then, of course, the next day we go on to coaching, uh, how you should uh, present I'll, yourself. Go I'll, ahead. Let's stay yeah. on the client thing. There. All right. What advice would you give clients if they want to make a good impression on the coach? You know, it's, it's really very simple. Uh, one is show up on time. <laughs> Maybe slightly early is always good. Uh, be squared away with your equipment. Uh, present yourself in a, in a manner that's, that's well-rested, well-fed, ready to go. And then have an open mind. Uh, you know, one thing I really stress in my class is that when somebody makes a correction, that the best thing you can ever say to them is thank you. Because we know from neuroscience, when you say the word thank you, you rewire the brain to gratitude. But most people, when they're corrected, give you a list of excuses or reasons or assumptions of why they're doing what they're doing. So an open mind is more than just being open. It is also a grateful mind. And I think as a coach, we're their advocate. We're not against them. We're with them. They're part of the team. And when you get information from somebody who actually cares about your progress, 
the best thing to do is be ready, willing, and able to try it and to say thank you. Um, you know, and it depends on the level of student too. If you're a newer student, uh, just come and try. Uh, you don't have a I can attitude or I won't attitude. Just come and give it the best try that you can and get used to it. I think those are things that make a class really exceptional for the instructor. Uh, you and I have taught people that don't want to be in class occasionally, you know, uh, because their institution set them or they had to go for the thing. And it's very difficult. But we're so fortunate we teach people that pay us that want to be there. And they don't have to do a whole lot to get a lot out of the class, but they need to be fully present. And they're not there to impress us. Uh, they've already impressed me by signing up and coming to class. They're there to improve. And that's my job and their job. Yeah, but you know, there are those people that show up at classes because they do want to prove to the instructors that they know what they're talking about <laughs> or show them how good they are. Of course. <laughs> there, there is that. And I've been guilty of that a, a few times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's tough, too, because, you know, uh, how do we prove ourselves as shooters or teachers or, you know, clients in class or performers? And I understand that because, you know, I came up in a fighting environment and uh, there was some of that. But, I, you know, I look back at the best coaches I had and they were able to clearly see who I was. And when I acted a fool, they clearly put me back in my place. Uh, I'm never late anymore because one coach looked at me and he said, you don't respect me. And I said, what do you mean, sir? I respect you more than anybody I know. He goes, you don't respect me enough by your actions. Your words say you do, but you don't show up on time. If you cared, you would be here so that both of us could get to work. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I'm broken. You know, I got to fix that. Yeah, you know, and there's a difference between the first time student and someone who yes. is showing up for a so-called advanced class or an instructor level class, mm -hmm. you know, if the class starts at nine o'clock and you roll into the parking lot and walk through the door at eight 58 mm -hmm. and you don't have mags loaded. All right. You signed up for a shooting class. Mm -hmm. You knew you were coming and you walk through the door and prepared to start class. And we know for the rest of the day, they'll be the last person back to the line. Every time we run an exercise, They'll always be behind us. Yep. Yep. The that reoccurring is theme, the reoccurring theme. That's what they become. And they're also the least likely to accept coaching. Mm -hmm. yep. And I think that's a protective mechanism. You know, you're buffering yourself out of the learning. You're like, I'm going to go do the thing, but I'm just here to do the thing. So uh, are they there to collect the certificate or are they there to learn? Mm -hmm. And that, that's a difference as well. Anything else on the client? Uh, you know, I think uh, something that we should do as, a, as coaches, we talk about, you know, recognizing pre-assault indicators. We should be recognizing the same thing in our students. Uh, not that they're going to assault us, but pre-learning indicators. Uh -huh. You know, how do they learn? How do they sit? Are they attentive? Uh, are they on time like we talked about? But, you know, I look inside of people's notebooks when I'm talking to them to see how they organize themselves and their notes. I listen to the words that they say. And I think we have a great responsibility to uh, embody the techniques that we say for self-defense. They also work exactly like for teaching. So I, I think that's an important part for us to pay absolute attention to greet our students. I know you and I have been to classes before where, you know, you're just another dude in the class. You know, you don't get much in, you don't get much coaching. If you shoot pretty well, you can be left alone the whole weekend. 
Um, and I think as coaches, it's important we get out there, we greet people, we make some sort of a, a recognition of their time and that we're glad to have them in class because that's going to set the standard for the rest of the day too. All right. And I think one thing we need to remind ourselves as instructors or coaches as well is because we know it doesn't mean the student knows it. Mm-hmm. That's, they're coming to us to get mm-hmm. that. And so we have to remember from that mindset that terms are not universal. And there are things that we think, oh, everybody should know this. Well, they had to learn it somewhere along mm-hmm. the way. And, you know, I, I found myself, I had a very poignant moment uh, here uh, a year, half, a year, year and a half or so ago. Um, I noticed that the reviews from my private class all talked about relaxed teaching style. Yeah, yeah you know, very easygoing and all that kind of stuff, but you never would have gotten my deputies that said that. Mm-hmm. Because I had absolutely no patience whatsoever for a person who was supposed to be a trained professional to not be competent, not be, you know, everything. And I let it show badly. Mm-hmm. And I had to, I had to go make some apologies to some people and eat some crow and ask for a second chance you know, to come back and establish that relationship and, you know, learning how to deal with things differently when I've got them on the line. And, you know, quite frankly, there's a difference between the prisoner deputy that's there in class because they have to be there and the one that, that came. I just finished today uh, 10, my 10th of 10 classes that I've done first quarter of the year for the deputies. It was supposed to be seven classes i had to add three because people didn't show up and so i had to to add three additional i've still got some people that didn't show up that their supervisors are now dealing with but i've got one deputy that showed up three times Mm -hmm. there's a spot open he's coming yeah all right but i also have to remember i have to teach him as well as the one that's being made to be there Mm -hmm. and that's sometimes a hard transition to make from one end of the line to the other and that that's a great example you know we get our feedback because you know our clients feed it back to us if they don't show back up or they're unhappy um you know i hear a lot of guys complain about their clients on the internet i'm like dude you need to get in front of the mirror and have a hard look you know like Raylan Givens said if you meet a-holes all day you're an a-hole <laughs> it's the problem so you got to work on that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the feedback we get. And I got to tell you, it hurts sometimes, man. It's very straight to the heart. You just, you know, you recognize something in yourself that you couldn't see clearly before. Right. And it's a truth business. Well, you know, the hard chargers and hard performers didn't mm-hmm. mind the fact that I was hard on the range. Right. The struggling students, mm-hmm. they minded. Mm-hmm. And that was my fault. That wasn't theirs. Yeah. There's. Okay. Second day is curriculum. Or coaching. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we we've kind of touched on a little bit, uh, but you know what I talk a lot about with the coach is how we create uh progress for our students instead of what we teach. So um it's it's very important that we find a way to communicate well. You and I were just talking about one of the most important things is that we hold ourselves accountable to the same principles we put forward. Uh, we may not be the absolute best shooter in the room at the time because there's some pretty good shooters out there, but we have to be the best observer and receiver of information. Uh, we have to be 
someone who can speak well and eloquently and present to our side. Uh, uh, you know, I teach in class that words are a virus and what they infect us with is ideas. So I'm very careful about the words that I choose because that's my first tone of communication. I think all great instructors are good at managing EQ, the emotions of other people. Because like you were just speaking about, you know, a hard charger, their, their challenge to skill ratio will be 20% above what's comfortable. But a normal person is about 4%. That's all we're looking for. So if I see somebody who's incredibly excited or agitated or disassociated, they're not there anymore, they checked out. It's my job as the instructor to manage their emotional equilibrium at that point and get them to check back into the program. Because that's something we forget about. Uh, I think you have to be really good at what you do so it leaves a reservoir of skill to adapt to new situations. Uh, you need to know your curriculum well. You need to be able to shoot. You need to be able to teach without thinking about it so that when there is something you, new and unique, and every time we show up to the range, something goes wrong. You know, I, I taught in Kansas, and it was 30-mile-an-hour winds, so it was interesting. But I have a reservoir of skill, so it doesn't make me upset, so I don't take it out on the students. I can simply teach for that. Uh, I think that you need to build a legacy. Uh, you need to track people that train with you. You need to see the legacy of their accomplishments because truly as instructors, I don't need credit for it, but am I making a difference? Do I see a difference in the people that come in contact with me? They say that true genius is uh, people touched for the length of duration of that time. So if you infect somebody with a new idea, and they learn a new way to do something, that duration is for their lifetime. That's true genius in teaching, you know? And I think the final thing for us as instructors, we still have to be students. We should be learning new skills. We should be working on new things so we get good at it. Those are the things that I stress with people to try to get them involved as at an instructor level, which is something I don't hear a lot about, you know? Uh, it, you talked about words. We exclude people by our words sometimes instead of including them. You know, we have specialized language that nobody else can understand. God, if you go to a jujitsu class and you listen to us talk, you'd all think we're insane. You know, nobody knows what we're saying anymore. And that's how you get included in the group. But it also isolates people from the group. So it's something we have to watch on. And I think talking about the coach, their presentation, their ability to talk well. Uh, I even get people to watch TED Talks because apparently people that show their hands like this when they talk are rated five, four times higher than anybody else on TED Talks. Because we know in self-defense, we always want to see the hands. That means there's no threat. Well, it's the same thing when we're speaking. We want to see the hands, the body language should communicate the same things as your words. I have two distinct TED Talks. I'm not going to say which ones they are. One guy is an amputee, so he has no hands, but he still communicates well. The other guy is a deep intellectual, very smart guy, but he crosses his arm and looks inside of himself all the time. People are immediately uh, irritated by the intellectual and immediately gravitate to the triple amputee. There's a John Hearn joke in there somewhere. There's got to be, right? <laughs> but it's cool. You know, that's what coaching's about. You have such a short time to get to the people, you know, and your words and your deeds and your actions all have to match as a coach, you know? So if you're, if you're asking for things from people, we should also be putting the same thing forward from ourselves. And that's what great coaches do, great teachers do. You know, you brought up a, a point there about exclusion. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to admit they don't know what you're talking about. No. <laughs> and, you know, terms are not universal. 
And that's something I'm constantly reminding myself of now as I've been in this self-discovery of getting better is you may say it, it makes perfectly good sense in your head. And you, well, everybody knows this, but you may have somebody in the class that just does not know what it means. And they might not want to be the one to step forward and go, hey, uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. And so that, you know, maybe going back to the basics and explaining the term, what it means. And then you might can just start using the term. But that's all part of communicating with the, with the clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. so, something as simple as removing the magazine from the holster. I mean, from the mm-hmm. pistol without taking the pistol out of the holster. It's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. You can say it. Mm-hmm. But until you step up and you show your students, hey, this is how you do this. You'll get. You can say it and you'll see seven different things happen on a line of 12 students. But if you step up and you demonstrate, this is how you do this. You'll see two things happen on a line of 10 students. Cause there's still one that's going to do whatever, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how much the explaining what you're saying and then demonstrating what you're saying, you know, creates mm-hmm. a better understanding of what you're saying. You know, we have to explain, we have to do it. And then we have to get them to do it. And that's the, it follows the rule of threes. You know, we know threes from law enforcement work. You have to give a command three times before you get some sort of reaction to it. It needs to be a, an alpha command that's straightforward. It's no different than teaching people. Uh, our, our minimum number to make a pattern is three, but also the largest cognitive stack that we can hold is about three things in our head at a time. So teachers should always be working on groups of three and explaining things in their progress or actions and explaining and demoing. I've kind of found it funny in the firearms industry that some people are very reluctant to demonstrate in front of their students, you know, uh, and, and it's not just funny. It's rather sad because I, how could you do any activity and never demonstrate, you know, you're, you're depriving the group that needs to see you do it well. And I know you and I have seen people do things that were brilliant and you just happen to see it. And you're like, I get it. I know what you're saying now. I've seen you move. Uh, I was in Tim, Tim Heron's class, and he did a primary hand-only draw while he was talking and not thinking about it. It may have been the most efficient primary hand draw I've ever seen in my life. It was a beautiful moment. He was utterly unaware of it, but it allowed me to see what he was doing. You know, And I'm going to hold that image for the rest of my life and try to model mine after the way he moved on that. So that, that's important. You know, This rule of three, repeat show them, get them to do it, and then start the process again. Yeah, I mentioned this on a recent episode, but I'm going to touch on it again here. Uh, I had a very good instructor in a class here recently, and I have a drill that I'll come up with that works for both rifles at close range and for red dot founded pistols. And I put up the target that I used specifically for this drill and I just verbally explained the drill to him and I didn't demo demo it. And he did exactly what I told him to do, but it was exactly (laughs) how the drill is supposed to be run. (laughs) And and as funny as he was doing it, what is he doing? And he got done. I asked him, he said, but you said, I'm like, that is exactly what I said, but that's not what I meant. 
I did the same thing last weekend. I meant to say the target on the left. I said the target on the right. They all shot the one on the right. I'm like, my brain said, what are they doing? And then the other part of my brain said, that's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right. And then half the class was going, well, before you said the left. So yeah. I created a big mess, you know. Yep. yep. And it's as simple as if I had demoed mm -hmm. the drill. Yeah. What I said and what I did would have matched up and he would have known exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. But again, he did what I told him to do. <laughs> Yeah, just, him for that. <laughs> well, I was like, man, what are you doing? Because he's a guy I can talk to, you know. Yeah. I did what you told me to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After and he after he explained to me, well, yes, yeah, you did do exactly what I told you to do. And it's just as funny. Uh, it works out sometimes. Uh, and it's made me a further believer in you gotta do the demo. Mm -hmm. You got to do the demo. Because again. We can go right back into the people who don't necessarily want to raise their hands and single themselves out and say, I don't understand what you're trying to tell me today. And then they just like kind of stand back and they kind of wait and try to figure it out as other people are doing it. And I got to think that the, a lack of confidence is going to impair skill. Hmm. It just seems like that, that would be the case to me. Right. Yep. All right. The third part of the class is the curriculum. Yeah. So uh, when we talk about curriculum, this is a little different. Um, you know, in martial arts, we went through the superstar phase where you have a fighter and he tries to teach and he may or may not be able to teach. Uh, we've seen in athletics that oftentimes great athletes are very poor coaches. It's more the B-level athletes that are great coaches because they struggle really hard to do it. They tend to reach more people, but with the superstar methodology of, of, of building a curriculum, whatever you're good at, you're going to teach to your students, now, expecting them to be good at the same thing. And that means you'll draw primarily people like yourself. It, it means everybody on your team has to be like you are in order to learn that curriculum. And we found it didn't work real well. So in martial arts, we made these elaborate curriculums with, you know, uh, you know, 40 pages deep of techniques everybody should learn. And it caused mass confusion because it didn't follow any clear set of goals. So one thing we work a lot of in this class is how to develop not only the physical aspects, the technical aspects, but how the brain works. Uh, you know, there's two systems that we can work under. One is full of cortisol and adrenaline, and that really impairs learning. Uh, it's great for fight or flight, but it's not great for learning. If we can get people into a, the system that allows, I'm not going to go through all, but five different chemicals that improve social bonding, the processing power, leave pain, and allow us to have less anxiety, we call that a flow state. And the way to do that in a curriculum is it needs to have four goals from the front. The first one is that we need to know what we're going to clearly do. You have to have a clear goal in your curriculum. What am I teaching? So for me, I primarily teach the armed citizen. So the three things I always want to make sure that I cover well in a shooting class only is how to draw the pistol and get a first efficient round hit, how to call the shots because they're going to have to be able to follow up and know if they're making hits. And when you're doing that on human beings or clear targets that you can't see any indication on, the only way you can learn to do that is from your sights or your dot and then be able to do it in either multiple shots or in multiple targets. For me, those are the three things that are always my clear goal. So my, my curriculum is built around that. Other people, it may be a bit different. You know, certain classes, it'll be a bit different. But I'm going to have a clear set of goals 
So as a coach, I hold that in my mind and I don't get into war stories. I don't get into things that I like. I stay with the goals and my curriculum is broken down to interlocking chunks, a chunk of this chunk of that. We interlock them. And then we learn not only in a linear fashion, but a transition passion. So we can go out to the sides. I can take some mastery from some place where you're not good at it. And you've learned mastery in another skill. Like I had a young lady in class. She was an exceptional dancer. I told her to stand as if she was getting ready to dance. Her posture changed and she shot the gun better. So, you know, transitional knowledge is really important in that. The next part of the class is immediate feedback. This is one of the hardest things in shooting is we don't get immediate feedback from what we're doing. Uh, if you have to go and look at the target, it's too long. It's too far. It's too much distance between the action. Uh, if you take a boxer and you say, hey, keep your hands up and you show him how to keep his hands up, and you teach him to throw a jab and a cross, and then he gets in the ring and he drops his hands, the immediate feedback is he gets hit. So he learns pretty quickly to keep your hands up, but we can't do that in class. So the only immediate feedback we have is we have to know that our process works, that we can call our process in advance instead of after the execution. I'm following the process, my shot is good, and I can follow to the next step. Uh, we have to create a deep level of concentration with our clients because concentration only lasts five to 15 seconds and has to be recycled. So we're always trying to keep a well of concentration, but that's why breaks are important. That's why structure is important. Uh, and the final thing for us that's really, really important in the whole class, and it's the final goal, is that we have to keep the challenge skill ratio relative to the student. Um, we want them slightly above their challenge level. Too much, they're overwhelmed. They'll say it was a great class, but it was like drinking from a fire hose, which means they don't remember anything. That's terms for it's too much. Uh, if it's too little, they'll check out. You know, Sometimes in a beginner class, you'll get a spouse that's a pretty good shooter and come to make the other person feel pretty good about it. And you can see them checking out. But I think as an instructor, we can modulate drills on the line to give each person a challenge set so that we can keep them engaged with it. If we meet those four things, the brain reacts differently and it allows us to set up more successful coaching. Um, you know, we can create a flow with a group as long as it's got some risk involved in it. It's got some uh, cooperation involved in it. Everybody's got skin in the game and it, we're working together. Uh, you know, instructors should be good about saying yes and instead of shutting people down and getting them to communicate clearly what they want to do with themselves. Because people will tell you what's wrong if you listen to them. So the curriculum is built around the idea of how to make performance in human beings instead of how to make shooters. And I find that performance level sometimes is sadly lacking because people get overcome. You know, they become uh, so much anxiety or performance problems that they don't really shoot well. They shoot great in practice. And then when you ask them to step up for a test, a new person shows up. So I think our curriculum has to reflect how we're going to get them to form at the highest level. All right. So that brings to mind a question. And we may break the internet here. Uh-oh. If the arbitrary standard is something, say, like a sub-second drill. Right. Or a sub-two-second build drill. Or any other thing that everybody chases, you know, on the internet. If we focus everything on that standard, are we not, are we then not focusing on improvement? Because if we can take a student from a two and a quarter second draw, you know, to first shot, first acceptable hit down to 198 draw to first acceptable hit, 
we've actually had a pretty significant level of learning at that point and performance improvement. Whereas if we take the guy who came in and say he was trying to get to the subsecond draw and he walked into class and he's at 115 consistently and you figured out a way to take 0.15 off of your draw and then he started hitting 115. Okay, that's not as significant a level of learning and improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I look for the bias too in that. Um, you know, some people are so biased towards accuracy. And accuracy is always rewarding because no matter how long you took, you still hit the target. But we know in fighting that there is a time limit. You know, um, if you're an Olympic level sprinter, you take five steps per second. If you're a high pro- high level professional fighter, you throw five punches per second. Uh, a very decent shooter is going to shoot five shots per second. So something's going on during that time. So if you're an accuracy first, but you won't put a time standard on it, there's a problem. And what I'm going to try to do as a coach is guide you into a methodology that says, well, here's why these time standards are important. You know, uh, yes, I'd like you to have a one second draw in class so that when you fumble the draw and it costs one quarter, one and a quarter second, and then you take an extra quarter second to confirm what you're seeing before you press the trigger, it gives you a 1.5 draw under performance problems. You have a reservoir of skill. And the same thing with the speed and efficiency guy. This is the guy you go to the match and what does he say? Hey, man, did you see my raw time? I'm like, yeah, dude, you had six mics. Yeah, but how fast was I? I was like, well, we all can be fast. There's no measurement. So the speed and efficiency guy, the metric is we have to pull them into uh, some sort of visual patience to actually get some feedback, immediate feedback, instead of just executing the action. And in performance mode is current level of skill earned in practice. Can you perform your current level of skill in practice or do you crash? So for every person, there's going to be places where as coaches, we're going to have to recognize that they're not being honest about what they're doing and that they need to do that. I don't think anybody in the world has to have a a two second build drill. You know, it's a nice addition for processing power, but I think I can get most students to hit a national average of three seconds, you know, one and a half draw, 25 splits, seeing everything, doing it well. And I want their first chance to do something high performance, to not be in a fight, but the novelty of it to be on the range so that they can feel the experience of too fast or too slow, too much information, too little. We go back to those bias again. That's what we're always fighting against. Uh, accuracy first people are always going to overconfirm. Uh, time pressure people are just going to do the action and press the trigger. And as a coach, man, you really got to start figuring out. They'll say the words to you. You'll know right away. And they'll quote something and they'll, they'll show you on the range what they're shooting. And we have to give them some reason why this information is important. You know, I give you a lot of credit in my class. You don't know about this, but uh, well, you've been a good mentor to me because I've used you as a clearinghouse inventory of classes I should take. And you've been very good about that. I ask you and I say, hey, what do you think about this? What should I do next? And you've given me a wonderful education because I, I'm sure you had some experiences you didn't share with me. Right? <laughs> so I learned very quickly, hey, listen, Lee, what do you think? I, what about this? What's next? What should I do with this? And I listened very clearly to what you did because it saves me the problem in the long run. And I tend to overthink things anyway by nature. So I need to act sometimes. And if somebody I trust says, hey, you should do this, then I need to do it. You know, and that's how I get around these biases in class is I, I learn to be open. I learned, I teach the student to be open and I don't get stuck on the one side or the other. Cause I got to tell you as a fighter, you need to be fast and you need to be accurate and you need to be able to perform. 
but how much is the relative value of what you're doing? There you go. Did we break the internet? I don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see. You know, if, if they won't hear this until uh, Monday, this is Wednesday the thirteenth, and they'll hear Monday, whatever that date is, uh, provided we the people to listen to. It. Uh, um, you also talked about uh, in the pre-show that the class is technically agnostic, mm-hmm. and that's an interesting term to me. What do you mean by that? Well, we know if you're agnostic, you you may believe God exists, but you may not be sure how. And the same thing, uh, technically, we've gone through a lot of skill sets. Uh, you and I have been shooting long enough to see the four positions of thumbs, you know, down, mm-hmm. straight up, forward, 45. And as a coach, what that means to me is that thumbs don't matter a whole lot in my shooting process. They're not a big part of it. Uh, so when I say I'm technically agnostic, it means I'm not set in a way to do things forever for my life. I'd like you to shoot well. And if we can show that your shooting works the way that you're doing it, then that's a fine technique for it. But the performance has to be there. You have to be able to prove that this works. Uh, we get a lot of arguments about stances and words and how we grip the pistol and where our hands go. And oftentimes we miss the, the end result, which is we need to make a better shooter. You know, we can't argue about these things and have it one way because, you know, if we look at athleticism, it's constantly evolving. Uh, at this point in shooting, we have better guns, we have better holsters, uh, we have better belts, we have better uh, training, we have more information available, and we have less information available. Some of it's really bad. It's not particularly good. So technically agnostic means if you shoot well from the weaver stance, I'm not going to spend the whole class trying to reroute your and unlearn that. If you're a good shooter with what you do already, why would I want to change that and make you spend three months to reroute it? Now, if I see a true benefit and if we can do some experimentation, then we can learn what works for you. And that's really at the heart of it is coaching is experimentation is let's see what works for you. Um, What I fight, and I'm sure you fight it all the time, is preference. It's not technique. It's preference. I prefer to do this way. You know, and I always say, well, heroin addicts prefer heroin too, but it's not necessarily good for them. You know, it's a habit and habituations as an instructor are very hard to break because they come out more under pressure than they do on the line. So how do we break a habit? We replace it with something better. We give them something better to do that yields results immediately. So that's why I say I'm technically agnostic in it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time just trying to make you grip the gun the way I do. I mean, I'm very fortunate, even in my 50s, I have great eyesight, I have large hands, I'm a big, strong guy. Uh, So I could get away with a lot of imperfections in my technique. But what I look for is, does this injure people? You know, Uh, there's no doubt that the high elbow is not good. That's how you get tennis elbow. And as a strength and conditioning coach, I've spent all my time trying to teach people not to do that, because it doesn't happen in athletic performance. There's not many things where we do elbows out. Uh, because that tendon is not really made for that, but it feels good because we feel like we're crushing the gun inward as we're rotating the hands apart. So what we got to do in technique is we got to find where's the strongest level for this. Are we using the 625 muscles in the body appropriately? Are we creating structure with a 205 or 206 bones? However you count it, are they behind what you're doing? Would you be able to do this under pressure and does it make you a better shooter? So I think that's why I'm technically agnostic. I've been through enough rounds of it. I've seen people that shoot with really weird techniques uh, and do great. 
you know, and I've seen people that are so committed to one thing that's killing their performance, you know, so uh, it's always a hard change with people to start attacking the way they do things right away, you know. It always amazes me that when a student say is not performing well in a shooting class and you start coaching and they go, but I always do it this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why your performance looks the way that it does. Why don't you try this, you know, this technique or, 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 you know, this modification of what you're doing and see if we get improvement. And then you mentioned something else about habituation there. And one of the battles that I fight in, you know, the organization is people don't want to go to the range with the instructor <laughs> and the coach. They just, Hey, could you give me a hundred rounds so I can go to the indoor range tonight and shoot after work? No, because you're going to go shoot a hundred rounds of wasted ammo because all you're going to do is what you want to do. And you're going to drill in the bad habits. All you're going to do is reinforce something that's wrong. But if you want to shoot a hundred rounds, I'll go to the range with you and I'll coach you for a hundred rounds. And it's amazing. Oh, I don't know. We'll go with one of the other instructors. But I'm not going to give you ammo just to go shoot. I will provide ammo along with coaching. And it doesn't have to be from me. It can be from one of the other guys. And it's amazing how they just don't want to take up on that because they just want to go, I guess, play <laughs> and not train or practice. And, yeah, you know, I on the private sector side you don't see that as much because people that are coming to class their motivation motivation is, is they're wanting to learn because hmm. they're putting down their money to get that but from the institutional side when you're dealing with prisoner students sometimes it's just that whole motivation hmm. factor and i guess that goes back to client is motivation yep so, you know, as shooters, we have intrinsic motivators as athletes, as anybody wants to master anything. Uh, you know, one is you kind of have to have passion for what you're doing. Yeah, it, you know, and that's what you face in institutional groups is there's no real passion for it. You know, uh, you have to have a clear purpose why you're doing it. Uh, you have to have curiosity of why it works or why it doesn't. Uh, and then you have to do it because it's self-directed because you want to do it. And you're always seeking mastery. You know, uh, I don't consider I've given I've been given ranks of master in martial arts, but I don't consider myself. I don't make anybody address me as that because it's just ridiculous. But I'm always seeking mastery. I don't care whether I'm shooting or I'm lifting weights or, uh, you know, I'm creating a new relationship with somebody. I want to be a master at what I'm doing because that's a really important process. And if we can get those intrinsic motivators in, in part of a deliberate practice schedule, people's performance, you know. I tell people in class, listen, if you'll spend five minutes in a clearly defined way of practice three times a week, you'll be a much better shooter, which is a very moderate investment, you know, athletically. And then, you know, you and I can know guys that have shot 25, 50,000 rounds and gotten worse, you know, doesn't make you better. Claude and I talked about that. He said, you never want to do the 50,000 round things because you'll be a worse shooter at the end of it. And uh, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, I've had to cut my ammo count down in class a little bit. And people started shooting better because we were shooting too much. You know, the 1,500 rounds, the 1,200 rounds, the 1,000 rounds just wears people out. Yep. And we're not getting the result that we want. So practice needs to be deliberate. Coaching needs to be deliberate. And we need feedback. And we need somebody else to watch us because we can't see our faults. Yep. You know, one of the things Larry Mudgett said in the class uh, 
uh, took from him back in September. And there's a whole episode, or actually two episodes on that for listeners that are just finding the show, want to go back and listen to. Um, he talked about his skip loading uh, technique that he does. And he referred to that as he's making deposits in his bank. And he goes back to that very basic, it's a pure marksmanship, you know, technical drill. And he says, anytime he takes money out of the bank, like doing some sort of running gun type thing, action type shooting or whatever. All right. Those are, those are withdrawals. He has to go back and make deposits into his bank by going back to the very root fundamental of his entire shooting system. And that stuck with me. And, you know, using his skip loading technique and bringing back and exposing that to our personnel and just a brief exposure to it. I've seen our scores on the call course shoot up dramatically. And these 10 classes uh, have 43 uh, deputies come through and our average qual score right now is a 9214 from those people that have come through the class. Now you've got some exposure to Georgia law enforcement. <laughs> A little bit <laughs> an agency running at a, a agency average of over 90 and we're shooting a course that is significantly harder than the georgia post course yeah i mean it is significantly harder it's probably 20 to 25 percent more difficult on a technical skill mm-hmm. level than what georgia requires and we're getting the guys up like i said 92 14 of the people who have come through the class mm-hmm. yeah of those 43 i've only had five that had to reshoot the the course wow wow (laughs) wow yeah and that's after a two-hour crash course in the skip loading process Mm -hmm. so it's amazing it's amazing how reducing the round count but making those presses on the trigger every last one of them have value yep and yeah mindful practice works being and, present matters and i told i tell them all in my intro the whole thing i said the only way the system doesn't work is if you lie to yourself mm-hmm. and if you lie to yourself there's nothing i can do for you and i take them through the first round i say so did you feel and i'll name a couple of things i start saying yeah yeah okay that's why you miss now you're able to tell that you're doing it so now you have to coach yourself through not doing that and that's how you get your hits and it's amazing how just oh that's what you've been telling us for the last 13 years but i found a better way to say it (laughs) right and you got it from somebody who had a great deal of experience saying it you know i mean and he had a great deal of success so the faith is involved Mm -hmm. so the self-image of teaching that you're like i know this works and then the people feel that too and that's when you know you're coaching well because you're starting to get success every across the board, you know. And that's what we got to hold ourselves accountable in our curriculums, uh, and we have to measure everything. And that's the problem: is our preference of measuring is always skewed. Yep. And all right, the name of the class is deliberate coaching. We keep using this term, coaching. Mm-hmm. We haven't defined the term. Yeah. What is coaching? To me, it's advocacy. Um, it is, it is a partnership. It is a team between, uh, I always call people clients. Um, I used to call my fighters athletes, uh, and my connection to them as a coach is to be the one that sees the things that they miss. 
and to research them and to watch for them and to be the person that receives information that's not apparent to them and be able to rephrase it, retrain it, and put it in a different methodology so that they can grasp onto what they're doing. Um, I don't, you know, instructor, teacher, coach, there's not a big difference, but we've all had a good coach once in our life, most of us. And you felt that uh, he was a good leader or she was a good leader. They connected to you and they got you to do things that you might not want to have done. And you didn't think you could do, but you could get to the next level with their help. And that's the reason I use coaching is the term because I'm always going to be helping the other person. You know, some people say I'm very pleasant and a nice person. And then they hear me in class and the things that I say to people and I say, well, that's just horrible. You know, I told one guy in the class just recently, I was like, well, I'm glad to see that you've embraced failure after having a great streak with success. And he laughed and I walked away and he was like, Hey, wait. And I was like, that's exactly what you've done. You know? And he was like, that's horrible. I was like, but it's your choice. So make a different choice. So coaches, you know, we can make elaborate definitions, but to me, it's always been an advocacy. It's teamwork. And I feel a great deal of responsibility for failure. And I always put the success on the person doing the work. And I shoulder the responsibility of finding a better way to say, do, show, or get them to feel what they need to so they can get to the next level. And uh, that's a hard way to teach. Uh, you know, I, to be honest, teaching this class is a piece of my soul. Uh, it's four decades of work. Uh, I have had a very different reaction in teaching this class because uh, as funny as this sounds, I told my wife this. I said, it's kind of like running around naked on stage up there. Uh, I'm exposing who I am and what I believe in, what I teach. I'm not following anybody else's methodology. And I say things and do things that are straight from my heart and from my experience. And I'm learning some profoundly difficult lessons occasionally in class that I fail and I don't do a good job at this and I've got to pay attention. I got to do a better job. And I think that's the hard part of coaching that people don't see. You know, uh, I leave the house, I'm gone for five days. Uh, away from my family. And I need to be turned on fully present for about 13 or 14 hours. You know how it is. It's a grind on the road. And, uh, you know, you'll never catch me having drinks with the guys in between class because I need to be fully present to teach. And I owe that student the best of me. Uh, I need to be well hydrated. I need to sleep well. And I need, need to be able to coach them to the highest level because I may never get another chance with them. And if I turn them off in the first five minutes or I don't pay attention to them in class, I failed as a coach. And I've always felt that. Now, I'm not saying everybody's coachable either, but I ran a school of uh, 200 clients and uh, I found a way to work with four-year-olds, 70-year-olds, uh, men and women, high-level athletes, guys that just came in because they wanted to do something different. And it allows you to communicate at a different level and take responsibility for the parts that are your fault and try to improve your program. All right. Uh, I've got one comment on coaching. This, this comes Good. from my buddy, Eric Lund. And Eric is, I did an episode called my Mount Rushmore. That was me talking mm -hmm. about the four biggest influences on me as a shooter, shooter and, a, and an instructor. And Eric has a thing that he constantly says in classes. I'm not here to make you shoot like me. I'm here to make you shoot better. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I see an awful lot of times in classes run by people that they're trying to make you be them, not necessarily make you be better at what you're able to do. And I think that's the difference. To me, that's the difference between coaching 
than just reading off the mm -hmm. curriculum card, off the cue card or what you're doing next. You know, your first client's always you too, you know? And, uh, you know, if I had somebody in a martial arts school and they weighed 90 pounds and I weighed 220, I can't tell them my preferences to do things. I had to find a way to make this work, you know? And that's, you know, it's so much easier in shooting because the tool is the tool. We got good guns and we got good ammo. We got good holsters mostly in class, you know? Uh, and it really doesn't discriminate by age or race or gender uh, it, or experience level. You can just get better at it quicker. You know, it's a, it's a, I, I have to say, as most things I've taught in my life, this is one of the simpler things physically, but one of the harder things mentally to coach because of the time compression in it. All right. Well, then what does deliberate mean? Well, you know, as I define the four focus factors in practice, whenever we do something deliberate, we go about with a methodology, a sense of purpose, and that we want to see that it improves the end result. And a lot of times for us that have learned in a haphazard fashion, um, you know, both of us have been teachers in different professions. I know you've taught in college. Uh, you can get the degree and you can get the knowledge. And then you're simply set upon the world, <laughs> hoping you know how it all works. And I would have young men start working for me and they couldn't wait to start coaching. And they became the most totalitarian dictators you've ever seen in your life because they thought that's what coaching was. And deliberateness was an apprenticeship with me that I'm going to help guide them with that. And deliberateness for coaching or practice or performance is a permanent method that allows you to find greater results in what you're doing. And what I find with people's practice or the way they teach classes is they do what they like. They do the preferences. Uh, if an information doesn't fit with their idea of how the world works, they don't look at it. Um, you can be two things in life, but you can't be both of them at the same time. You can be right and you can be certain, but very seldom will you have both of those at the same time. And I know you've done it. I've done it. Uh, how many times have we changed our mind about what we're teaching? You know, and you get a new realization. You're like all oh, those poor people before that I taught. I just didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> really, you know. So I start every class off with "I'm sorry," and I'm probably wrong about something, but future Brian will come and tell you about it because he doesn't know yet. You know, and that's what deliberate is that we're we're sense of purpose that we're going to seek the truth, even though it doesn't fit with everybody what everybody believes to be the truth. It's going to be at the end of the day in our, in our testing, our qualifications, our performance and how people view themselves. Uh, you know, I think we have to build self-image in shooting. Uh, you know, I use a, a mantra that I say in classes, I'm accurate, consistent, efficient, disciplined. I understand the context of the target and the context of the situation, allowing me to perform at my highest level. There's nothing anybody can say in the world that can shake that. Cause I know who I am. And that's, that's the deliberate part of this. And martial arts have always had this kind of, we're, we're purifying ourselves. We're, we're changing ourselves. Uh, we're learning to cut away the things that aren't necessary. Uh, the Japanese talk about the sort of life, the one that cuts away the mistakes and the boundaries. And the interesting thing in martial arts is they believe that coaches or teachers don't really come into their true essence as an instructor until their fifties or sixties because they're mature enough now to understand what's possible and probable, but they're also at a point where they're no longer trying to dominate the class with their performance or be the greatest fighter in the room. They're simply worrying about the external narrow focus of improving other people 
And that's why sometimes competitors don't do really well. They have a narrow internal focus of self-improvement. And what we're trying to do is get everybody to improve. Uh, and the final thing I'll say about this is most people that come to us for self-defense are in there for one reason or another. One is they're in post-traumatic growth. Something horrible has already happened to them. So they're there to improve themselves and to take back the strength and their self-resiliency. Uh, so we have to prepare them for that. We have to get them to face themselves through desensitizing them to that fear and getting them to face themselves. The other side is that they probably have some problem in their life that they think might be a problem in the future. Uh, either they're not physically fit, uh, they live in a bad neighborhood, they see some indicators. So we've got to give them also their strength and their power back so they can live with a certain degree of confidence. All right. Ooh. <laughs> Did I just hear Shelly? <laughs> no, that was me. Okay. <laughs> <Woo. Yeah. laughs> Sometimes it just pours out. You can't there you stop. Go. There you go. All right. Uh, you talked about before things that there was a technical. Yeah. There's a lot. Go ahead and roll yeah. All right. So, so uh, mostly in classes, we work on technical skills. How do we press the trigger? How do we grip the gun? How do we stand? Uh, what is our relationship between sights and trigger? And what is our follow through our process? And that's important training. Uh, but athletes are also have a psychological portion and a physiological portion. Uh, you know, when we look at uh, degrees of genius, uh, they, they recognize at least nine different types of genius. One is athletic, uh, spatial genius, uh, intrapersonal, knowing yourself, interpersonal, words, mathematics, music, uh, not one of those geniuses is better than another. All right. But the difference is that high level performance allows you to have a place psychologically where you're somewhat resilient and impervious to defeat. And that's part of what the psychological training that we're doing. We often say, you know, you train like you fight, which is not really true as a fighter. Uh, we train differently than we fight so that the fight is a lot easier. Uh, we drill chunks and portions of that. But psychologically, we've got to learn what causes us to make bad decisions under pressure and how can we avert that. Instead of correcting it afterwards, we have to apply a preemption to that. And that's where psychology comes into play. Uh, physiologically is different. And most people don't understand this, but personality doesn't scale and biology does. You will react to pressure in certain ways. Uh, you know, something that's really a good habit in law enforcement is you get a field training officer. Because the academy doesn't get you ready for anything, right? Post says that you, you feel like you're going to die and everything's wrong. And if you get a good field training officer, they teach you what to look for, how to act, and how to handle stress at a high level. Because that's what you're going to be opposed to all the time is stress. And if we can get people to set a preparatory index, a visualization of what they want before they perform, a kinesthetic visualization of either breath or feel, uh, if we can teach them to clear their mind, then they can execute at a very high level. And that's what the side of physiology is, because otherwise you go into stress mode, which means that you're in fight or flight. The amygdala is recording another round of stress for you and making your life much harder. So as coaches, we have to address how do you do something? How do you think about something? And how will your body respond to this? Uh, which I think is really important because we talk a lot about bad guys, but we also have to talk about how we deal with stress and how we make decisions and how that's a part of us. All right. And then one other thing we were going to talk about was curriculum versus teaching and learning. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, 
I don't know how many times I've changed my curriculum. How about you? You know, yeah, it keeps evolving because if we, we say we're just going to teach these things and we always use this, for instance, that, you know, Moses came down from the mountain with commandments and that's how the curriculum is forever. It, it becomes dead at that point. It will never evolve. It will never grow. And then your incestuously taught students, three generations from you, will not understand what you, you meant in the first place. And they will turn it into some horror of a technical show. And I have seen this in martial arts over and over again, where the instructor was outstanding. The instructors immediately under him were very good. Their students were pretty good. But by the time we got past that, nobody knew what to do anymore. They were making stuff up. They were putting attributions and reasons and how important it was. So, you know, the traditionalist gets caught in the curriculum, but in order to keep it alive, it's got to be combatively pressured all the time so that we see that people are getting better at what they do. And uh, with the great gift of uh, unlimited knowledge that we have right now in science and access to high level teachers, to education, there's no reason that we have to make a curriculum that sets still, that can't evolve and grow as we move forward. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned how many times have you changed your curriculum? <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm pulling, I'm pulling up my course descriptions over here. Um, last year, I changed the names of a bunch of my classes. Because mm-hmm. I always wanted to, I don't like intermediate versus advanced and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's all just layers on, on on the skills and so you've been through my defense what i used to call defensive pistol skills class yes all right that is now pistol craft that is the name of that mm-hmm. class but it's still basically the same curriculum that you would have seen pistol craft two the course description is description pending because that's my out pistol craft two can be whatever i want it to be <laughs> at any time and it's gonna be this is what i want to teach now this is what i want to and it's mm-hmm. not a hard and locked in thing and it also may be range dependent too mm-hmm. yeah, and student be- dependent right yep. sometimes you look at them and you go oh i can't teach what i was going to teach that's not important yep and then i've got a pistol craft three which is, you know, it goes back to a class that I had previously done that I just rebranded as three, but you've got to come through one and two before you get a three. And they're yeah. not, they're not analogous to anybody else's level one. Well, I took Brian's level yeah. one. So can mm-hmm. I come to your level three? No, no, that's not how, how this, this is all set up to be. And then what is now uh, pistol craft four is your favorite class. What used oh, to be, it must critical. be critical. <laughs> <laughs> I know the name of that one. (laughs) What used to be critical pistol skills. And the reason that is now four in my lineup is because I have gotten burned on people saying, yeah, I can do that. I can meet those prerequisites. And then just having horror show of a class. And I just made the decision is you're going to come through three classes with me before you go through mm-hmm. this material or i'm just not teaching it anymore because i had two classes of it um that just one was my mistake i thought the student body would be ready for it and they should really sure they should have been ready for it and then the other uh issue was i had someone vouch for a group of students and these 
and I said, okay, well, if you're vouching for them, uh, all right. And they didn't meet the skill levels required to take that class. And for those of you that are wondering what critical pistol skills is, uh, I describe it in the intro as this is for all you training masochists out here. They just want to practice 1% of what you need to be doing. And th this is truly for the training junkie. Truly you know what? It was really useful for me when I went to Ronnie's place to train because I had to do all the left-handed reloads from cover and all that. That was yeah. really, uh, I was like, thank God. Yeah. Like, this is no big deal. I know how to do this. Yeah. Yep. Thank God. And the reason to learn it in classroom and on the range is so that you're not trying to learn it with incoming mm -hmm. fire. Yep. And that class is admittedly, it's more of a law enforcement class than a private citizen mm -hmm. class. It's, it's probably the one thing in my repertoire that's not a direct one-to-one -one correlation from private citizen to law, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, and for private citizens out there, it's, if you've got everything else pretty well nailed down and you just want to challenge, mm -hmm. this is what you come to. If you don't have everything else nailed down, this is horrible business. You don't need to be coming and taking this class. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a better plug than that. Yeah. If I, if I had to take one class a year, I would take that class because it always shows me the novelty of doing things that I'm not comfortable with. I think that's a real value in this is that we, we feel what it's like to not have a good grip on the pistol or be on the left side or have to do a reload and re with the other hand. And that's a really important learning concept. And then also you start recognizing how great it is to have two hands on the gun and be perfectly able-bodied. <laughs> You'll never complain again about it'd be a little cold or a little rainy and you got both hands on the gun. Yeah. Well, the, the private sector reason I would give to take the class is, if you can get through that curriculum, there ain't nothing anybody can throw at you with a gun that, no. should, that should intimidate you whatsoever. Now, I can't point. The reason I say it's more of a law enforcement class is that every example I can point to to where the skill set was needed involves a law enforcement mm -hmm. officer. I can't point to private citizens, sec, you know, where, where it happened. Um, but, you know, the people that come to it, that take it, that want the challenge just because. All right. I, I, they leave the range going, yeah, there's nothing my gun can do that I can't solve down. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> Every time I look at a dummy round, I think of you. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because the dummy and the dummy. <laughs> it was the punishment round. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did I not ask you about the class that you would really like to relate to the audience? So if, if people are interested in this class, you don't have to be a professional instructor. Uh, uh, the funny thing is, as we're talking about curriculum, what I'm starting to see is it, it gets such a, uh, I'm getting such a big jump in skill sets because I'm teaching all the inside mechanisms that make us learn better. Uh, and then I'm getting people to coach each other in class. So there's a significant amount of working with another person. You also get to run a line so that you learn how to run large groups of people. I know we were talking about it before the show is that some people only teach one or two people and that's nothing like running a line of 10 or 15 or 20. It's a very different process. And I was glad to hear that you're doing the same thing that you're teaching people in your skill set of how to run a line, because that's a really hard, hard thing to do. And basically most of us learned it from emulation or apprenticeship, you know, and I think having a good, good class for that. If you're not a teacher, but you want to get better and you want to understand yourself better and you want to perform better, this is also a class for you. Uh, I judge everybody on their, their ability to communicate, coach with another person and improving themselves at the same time. 
so I think it's it's an interesting. It may get me to change my curriculum on some things. That's what I'm feeling at, at heart is that I'm seeing a big jump in the way that people are shooting from Friday to Sunday. And as we talked about, the, the changes become more permanent by then. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a better way to do all this. And that's what I'm always looking for at the end of the day. So if you're interested in it, don't feel like you have to be the world's greatest instructor. If you're just a good shooter, and you want to get better at what you're doing. And you think maybe in the future you want to do it. It'll be a good class for you, too. Well, there you go. So speaking of, tell people how they can find out about attending the class. Well, you can find us at thecompletecombatant.com. That's thecompletecombatant.com. We're on everything. Uh, I have a huge YouTube channel. Uh, Claude told me I have like 11 or 1200 videos on there for free. Uh, Lord knows what I talked about, but there's a whole bunch of videos on there. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm on Instagram as the chief chaos controller and thecompletecombatant.com. And then uh, I know we have a Facebook page, the complete combatant also. So uh, my wife is extraordinarily organized with this stuff and she's very good at following up. So you get the best of both worlds. You get a mad genius who wants to teach you and somebody with organizational skills because I don't know how you guys do this by yourself. My hat's off to you, sir. It's hard to handle all the administrative stuff and the sometimes stuff. not well. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit that would be me. <laughs> I would love to have someone that prepared certificates and stuff for me. Wouldn't that be nice? That would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And speaking of people that are their students and they come to a class and they know what they pay for the class. And they look down the line and you can, sometimes you can see people doing the math in their head and then you start thinking, you can see the thought bubble come up. I should hang out a shingle and mm-hmm. start being, you know, running classes and stuff. What I see over and over and over in the business world, and you see a lot of people coming out from the spec ops communities and stuff like that. Oh, well, so-and-so had success of that. So I'm going to go do it. It's the business practice part of it that where people sink or swim. It yep. may not necessarily be the on, on the range product. And they also, people are looking at the money and they go, well, let's see, I pay X dollar amount. There's 10 students here. So that's how much the instructor is making from this. Okay. They're not making that money for the one day of the class. Okay. If it's a two day, say weekend class, take that dollar amount and divide it by four instead yeah. of two. Because there was a day, at least a day of travel to get there and at least a day of travel to get back home. And then you got to take 35% off the top and give it to the government. Yep. So take that 35% off the top, divide by four, and then go, wow, is this really worth it? Uh, I traveled to teach a class one day or one weekend, and I looked at the total amount of revenue. I'm like, I did pretty good this weekend. And then I just followed my own advice and divided yeah. by four. It's like, I made half what I make teaching the class at home mm-hmm. per day. Mm-hmm. And, and here's another startling thing. Mm-hmm. How many of us are making a living at it? Not many, of, not, not many. Not many that don't have a pension from some other or some That's other right. means of support outside of it. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's far fewer than people that play in the NFL. Yeah. So there's 1,800 ball players in the NFL, and uh, you know as Tom often says, there's 40 or 50 of us living on the road making a living at it, and uh, it's tough. It's tough. You know, I had to pivot to being on the road for the last year, 
So it means I've been gone every weekend, you know, and uh, my weekend is Wednesday, maybe Tuesday and Wednesday, and that's it. And uh, curriculum development, uh, answering questions, social media, developing videos, uh, doing podcasts like you're doing. This all takes a tremendous amount of time. And uh, you've got to be willing to do that side of the work, too. Yeah. And other things, I scheduled a class in Indiana in February but the class was at an indoor range I said so weather won't matter I think you were going to be in a different part of Indiana the same I was (laughs) and we both got (laughs) your flight got canceled didn't it Brian it sure did (laughs) yep flight got canceled on Wednesday if I remember correctly is when I got the email and so I spent all day Thursday you know refunding money for the class and then that's a whole you know weekend's worth of revenue gone Mine was even worse. I had 20 people for red dot on Friday. And then I had an image-based decisional drill with eight instructors. Uh, I spent all day at the airport, didn't get out, but I couldn't get my bags back. So I came back the next day, they flew in there. Um, so I missed the 20 shooters, refunded them, but taught the eight for image-based decisional drills, which worked out great, but that's part of the job, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And I can't get that weekend back and they couldn't give it back to me. And who thought that an indoor range in Indiana would be a bad idea? Well, now we know, <laughs> yep. you know, yep. and if I could have gotten there, it would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the host worked with me on rescheduling that class. Uh, it's going to be the first weekend in June. So if you're listening and you'd like to take a class in Indiana and Terre Haute, Perfect. Indiana, the first weekend in June, I'll be there on Saturday and Sunday. Um the previous one, the one in February at the indoor range sold really, really, really well and mm. very quickly. And, you know, the one in June so far, I have one person has signed up for each day. Mm-hmm. All right. There's not much to compete with activity wise in February in Indiana. There's a whole lot of stuff going on the first weekend in June that you have to mm-hmm. compete with. And yeah. It affects the bottom line of this whole thing. Yep. You only got so many weekends. Yep. I get 18 days of vacation time a year. I'm not going to spend all 18 days of it working my third job. <laughs> Your third job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause my first job is the sheriff's office. My second job is the college. My third job is the business. Yeah. <laughs> It's glorious. Look how glamorous we are. Right. Boy, this is a wonderful life we've chosen. <laughs> hey, I love it, you know, but yeah. aspiring instructors know you got years of work ahead of you to get, get established and you've got to draw people in. You got to find some way to fill your classes. And uh, a lot of this has nothing to do with shooting skills. Yep. And if you're not prepared to spend a couple of years teaching classes for 50 bucks, 150 yep. bucks, with three people show up and everything, but if you cancel just because you didn't get enough and everything, it's, it's, you have to build the name recognition. And so that when people start asking about taking a class, Oh, go see this Brian Hill guy or go see that Lee Weems guy mm-hmm. or go, go see whoever. It, it's a hard road. And, yeah. you know, you think about the guys that came before us, they got that name recognition they one being road warriors traveling the country and teaching, but they actually had to have writing skill and stuff mm-hmm. to get published in the gun rags because that's how people learned about them. Now you got every day somebody throwing up another YouTube channel or an Instagram page channel, and they're an instant expert. Mm-hmm. 
but they may not have the skill to back that up. Hey, I spent four years in apprenticeship. You know, I attached to a guy who had a good training company and I work for free, you know, just to learn it because he didn't, he didn't run a lot of classes. He did one a month, sometimes twice a month for four or five months out of the year. And I attached myself to him like that little sucker fish on the shark. And I learned everything I could about running a business and running the line and what to watch for. So that when I decided to do it on my own, it wasn't a new thing, you know, and I'm grateful for that because without that experience. So now when you look at the money that people think we're making, you know, take four years of, of apprenticeship and then take three years of development and trying to build name recognition and getting your skills together. And then another three years to try to push the business forward. And so you're at a decade of work already. And then that's what people are really paying for at the, at, at the end of the day. That's why it's $400 for a class. Right. So, and that's why there's not a lot of people out there making a nope. living from it. And then on top of all that, you throw in the world's deadliest plague in over a century <laughs> and oh let's have an ammo crunch right at the same time yeah. mm-hmm. or what we're experiencing right now with inflation when gas goes from two dollars a gallon to four dollars a gallon that's a lot of disposable income that is suddenly wiped away yep. and that, that students just can't afford to do it and you know and Brother Lee, after the last two years, I'm starting to feel like a cockroach, like nothing could kill me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been yeah. through it all, man. Legal fights, COVID, yep. lost my gym, done everything, yeah. pivoted, gone to the road, fought the county, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're in the resiliency phase. Whoever makes it through <laughs> this is going to be something. <laughs> well, you know, every now and then you see a market contraction and it's through stuff yep. like this. Mm-hmm. Exactly through stuff like this. Is this is yep. what weeds out yep. you know, a lot of the people. And it's funny. one of the major uh, AR manufacturers during, oh gosh, one of the times when the, everything they could make was selling. Uh, I was at their factory mm-hmm. and I was, I was talking to one of their reps and uh, he says, we've got a problem. And I said, what's that? He says, everything we're making sells is selling. And I said, what's the problem? He said, we don't know where the market's going to be when this ends. And that scares us because right now there's no, just, it's just make it loaded, mm-hmm. ship it. And this taste change so quickly. And if we guess wrong on where the market will be in six months mm-hmm. and somebody else guesses right on where the market will be six months, you know, a few percentage points mm-hmm. here and there can make a bigger company. Yep. Yeah, every every boutique AR guy was doing great three years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the same now. Yep. And, and you look at uh, distributors that wagered mm-hmm. on a certain political candidate winning the 2016 mm-hmm. election, and they went heavy into debt to buy yep. inventory because they thought they would be able to sell it at a panic price. And the mm-hmm. election didn't go that way. Yep. And the ARs that were flying off the shelves all of a sudden were sitting on shelves mm-hmm. and sitting in warehouses. And several of the distributors went out of business because of it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a brutal, brutal, brutal world and a business to be in. So, like my coaching pro program, you have to predict, diagnose, and adapt constantly to everything that's going on in our world. You know, we just uh, the the model of old may not be the same one in the future, but go. we do it because we love it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's well, really the heart of it. I love well, what I do. 
<laughs> well, now we've painted this rosy picture. Where's your next stuff coming up? Uh, I'm teaching at a girl in a gun conference. Uh, I know I'm going to South Dakota and Nebraska uh, coming up. And then I'll be teaching here at my home range and uh, at my North Georgia mountain sports range too. So uh, the nice thing about our, our lawsuit is I established some good relationships with, with other folks so I can teach some other places too. So that's really helpful, you know, yeah. to get back to business. Where in Nebraska will you be? I have no idea. You know, my, my, my handler schedules me. I'll ask Shelly later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I shouldn't say this, but I call her my pimp, man. She gives me that strong pimp hand and tells me to get on the road, make some money. So off I go. There you go. All right. It's probably going to be on the East coast of Nebraska, like uh RevTac or something like that. Isn't it? Yeah. I think that's where I'm going with okay. Ted. Yeah. I, I've got, I've got some, some people on the other side of Nebraska. So if you were going to be yep. there, I was going to gonna yeah. send you a hook up there. Yeah. Uh, well, for the honest, I will pimp my business there for a second. Good. Uh, the last weekend of this month, that is like the last couple of days of April. And then the first day of May, I am in the Richmond, Virginia area uh, at the Cavalier uh, rifle and pistol club i'm teaching a close range carbine class on friday my trigger management class on saturday and a shotgun manipulations class on sunday and as we were speaking just now a order came in for the trigger management class on saturday isn't that awesome so, yay <laughs> um there's still plenty of spots in each of those classes so sign up for those uh the next thing coming up after that would be the first weekend in june and Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, trigger management on Saturday, pistol craft on Sunday. Um, then Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think the last weekend in June, trigger, um, trigger management on Saturday, pistol craft on Sunday. And then later on, it gets into Royal Range and Nashville and, and a couple other places. But if you go to firstpersonsafety.com and go to upcoming classes, you can get to all of that. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, come see me in person. He's yeah. an excellent instructor. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Buy and, now and get two free. <laughs> that's right. And come see Brian in, in, in uh, Dahlonega, Georgia, and in all the other places. And Well, Brian, it's always good to see you. I hadn't got to talk to you. Here I know. I guess I'll see you at the Mingle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll be at the Mingle. Tell, talk yep. about the Mingle. Yep. So uh, my wife put together a thing for women in the firearms industry. And this year it has doubled in size. So uh, we're going to be at a different location and uh, uh, she's got all sorts of sponsorships and great instructors coming in to teach class. Lee will be one of those. And uh, we got a lot of, a lot of good folks coming to train that weekend. And it's a really interesting thing because uh, because of the mingle, my last class was majority women of instructors class. I don't think a lot of guys that look like me, you know, uh, I look like a GI Joe doll with a beard you know, they get a lot of women in class. And I know it's because Shelly's made these bridges for me and she's allowed me to, to interact with people and do that. So the mingle is just a wonderful thing. Uh, in fact, whenever guys come to teach, they always say, Hey, when we're going to have the mangle, because uh, we want to be treated like this, uh, the sponsorship level, the gifts, the prizes, the instruction, uh, the, the weekend of learning is just fantastic. So, and she pays her some instructors for the conference too, which is really nice. Right. <laughs> Because I did six conferences last year, and you know what that is? It's yep. it's 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 a tough go. You know, we do that for free usually. So, uh, it's a good good weekend, and a lot of good ladies coming in, and uh, we're seeing a lot of excellent shooting instructors come up now. You know, like you and I have had the pleasure to work with Shannon and and Karen, and they're doing fantastic work now. So, 
Yeah. Um, that's going to be at the Pickens County. Yeah. First go yeah. To Jasper, Georgia. So Jasper. North Georgia mountains. Yes. I'm all over the, the Appalachian foothills here, apparently <laughs> from one side to the other. Uh, there are some very, very good barbecue in Jasper, Georgia folks that come. Uh, so that's Lee's superpower. That's you right. can call up wherever you are in the world and ask him where to eat. He'll tell you. <laughs> At some point in time, I will slip to the barbecue and I will have barbecue and corn fritters because <laughs> I know that's their best side. Yeah. I was, so. I was somewhere and I was like, I ought to call Lee. I don't know where to go eat tonight. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't know, I will know quickly. So. Right. Well, Brian, it's always great to talk to you. And I enjoyed talking about the, uh, the deliberate coaching class because I've heard about it and heard about it from other people really good things and i just had a chance to talk with you about it well i appreciate the opportunity it's always good talking to you uh and i think coaches need to talk to their peers and people that can help them at the same time because it's uh, that's that's how we grow is conversations like this honest conversations not firing missiles off at each other on the internet but you know sit down talking and it spurs on new ideas and this whole class came about because john hopman from filster asked me what would you teach if you had if you could teach anything in the world nobody ever asked me that i didn't even ask myself that that's how dumb i am as a coach you know so that's how it came about so i appreciate this opportunity and it's always th- thought inspiring and invoking to to, to speak with you and, and to watch the growth too. And, you know, we find that we're on parallel courses a lot of times, interestingly enough. So, yeah. and the fun thing about it, even though we're in the same area, we're colleagues, not competitors. That's right. Because we have so much, uh, inter- interchange like people will come to class and go see Brian <laughs> and, it, and it works both ways. And you just said something about John Hopman there asking that question. It's no, secret as to why his business has done as well as it is is doing because he he asked questions like that the smart guy <laughs> yeah i didn't get a chance to see his recent he and his, and his lovely wife recent uh presentation on the concealed carry equipment at, at tatcom mm-hmm. i heard really good things about it, it was like wow the fault this guy put into it well you don't come up with those products without doing a lot of thought yeah he's changing the face of the industry because he's making yeah. an interface now to get people to train better while they're buying the holster which nobody thought of right (laughs) it's incredible (laughs) wow let's combine the product with the end use hmm (laughs) instead we're in class like you need a better holster you need a better holster yeah there you go (laughs) all right well uh to the audience uh once again i would like to thank you for choosing to spend your time with us because we know that your time is your most valuable Mm -hmm. resource so thank you for tuning in once again And remember, only share the links to the shows with your smart friends.